1: Hello, welcome along. It must be time to search around the universe. Let's see what's happening this week. It's a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name is Dan. Welcome along. Thank you for finding, for sharing, following and listening to us as we take you on a quick spin around the solar system to see what science secrets are lurking nearby. This week, uh, we're talking about one of the best foods ever, chocolate. We'll hear why it tastes so good. What's happening in your mouth when you pop some chalk into it? We've got Anwisha Sarkaron, who is a professor of food science. She is a chocolate expert and she says it's all to do with how smooth it moves over your tongue.
2: Using a synthetic tongue, so a 3D printed tongue surface, which essentially has the softness, the roughness, like the features and also the hydrophilicity of a real human tongue.
1: Also, we'll take a trip to the smartest school in the solar system, Deep Space High, and find out how the Earth is a little bit like the Moon.
3: How about that for a crater? Wow,
4: that's
1: massive!
3: It's the Barringer Meteor Crater here in the Arizona desert. 50,000 years ago, a giant fireball would have streaked across the North American sky. It was travelling at 26,000 miles an hour and hit the Earth with the power of 2,500 tonnes of high explosives. It left this crater, which is nearly a kilometre wide and 750 feet deep.
1: And I've got your questions to answer as always this week They are on something bright, dazzling and shiny And also something to do with the smallest things in the universe It's all on the way in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly Let's get into it with the science that has been in your news this week King Charles III here in the UK has co-written a book about the climate crisis. Climate change is published next month and the environment has always been something that he's passionate about and always been keen to engage us in the fight to save the world. You must think that kings and queens, rulers across the world, have quite a lot to do. They're pretty busy people. The fact that he has spent some of this time writing a book for you all about the climate crisis, I think is a brilliant thing to do with his powers. Also, schools have been shut on Madagascar this week after the arrival of Cyclone Freddy. The storm spread across the island near Africa and tents, ropes and chainsaws were sent to areas very affected by the storm, which had already caused damage to Mauritius, another island in the ocean, earlier on this week. And finally, Professor Dame Angela McLean is set to become the first woman government chief scientific advisor. She'll help the government deal with big science stuff. She'll give them advice. Uh, She's an expert in infectious diseases, which is so important if you remember lockdowns and the pandemic a few years ago. I love that... Uh, th- the government is is getting wide advice on how to deal with things that maybe they're not as sure about, because why would they be? Leave it to proper science experts. And I like the fact they aren't widening who they are hearing advice from. So best of luck, Professor Dame Angela McLean. Let's take a spin of the A to Z of Engineering, the big wheel. You see, for the last few weeks, we have been learning about stuff that's made, stuff that's built and created. Uh, from A to Z, all the way from acoustics through to zoos. We're stepping into Engineering Academy right now. In every episode, we chat to our good friend Engers. He is an engineering expert who takes us through another letter. To find out what letter it is today, we need to spin the big wheel. Hello, and welcome to another
4: Engineering Academy, where we're exploring an A to Z of everything engineering. Let's spin the wheel and see where we're engineering today. Over to Engers to spin the wheel. It's
5: W. And W is for water.
4: Thanks, Engers. Water is a vital part of our lives. We drink it. We wash ourselves and our clothes in it. It helps heat our homes and flush our toilets. Nothing can live without water. Whilst you could live without food for more than a month, you'd only survive without water for a week. In fact, we are mostly water ourselves. 70% of our body is water. Two-thirds of the world's surface is covered in water. But only 1% of that water is drinkable. And here's a big number. Did you know we use more than 7 billion litres of water in the water cycle every single day? Engineering is at the heart of the system that delivers clean water to our taps and takes the waste away. Here to dive in is Engers.
5: So, first things first. Where does the water in our taps come from? Our water is mainly sourced from rivers and aquifers. That's an underground source to you and me. Engineers analyse data and use maps to find good sources of water, ones we can use without harming the environment. They carefully monitor river levels and use reservoirs to store extra supplies when river levels are high after rainstorms. Now, as you probably know, you shouldn't drink water straight from a river. Cleaning water is an important stage. Thames Water cleans enough water to supply 2.7 billion litres to nearly 10 million people across London and the Thames Valley every day. The water is cleaned using chemicals and filters and water treatment engineers are responsible for making sure machinery is in good working order and taking test water readings to make sure everything is working properly. Once cleaned, water is stored in large reservoirs before travelling through underground water mains to where it's needed. Engineering is key to building and maintaining networks that don't leak. And it's not just pipes. Manhole covers protect the pipe network, so replacing any damaged or missing ones is important. In some areas, houses have water meters which can measure the amount of water each household uses. These can be a good way to help reduce the amount of water we use, or waste. Engineers are involved in designing and installing meters and making sure they work correctly. Also, you can turn on your tap and take a drink. But hang on, we're only halfway through the process. After all, what happens when you flush the toilet or pull the plug after your bath? What happens to the waste? Water companies like Thames Water take wastewater away from our homes, schools and places of work using a sewer network, carrying it to sewage treatment works. Here they separate liquid and solids before treating them both to high standards. Once the water has been thoroughly cleaned, it's recycled back into the local river. And did you know that treated poo can be used to generate energy? Even the waste isn't, well, wasted. Thames Water sends nutrient-rich sludge to feed crops on farms, reducing the need for man-made fertilizer. They can even use ash from the generators to create synthetic aggregate, which is used in the construction industry.
4: Thanks, Engers. If you'd like to find out more and meet the team at Thames Water, head over to the Fun Kids website. And that's our take on the letter W. It's been wonderful. It looks as if there are a wealth of jobs for engineers in water. From managing the sources, water treatment, and network of pipes that brings it to our homes. And with sustainability in the environment, maybe there's a job for you in the future.
6: So my name is Dina and I'm an operations manager. And I manage a team of people whose responsibility is to ensure we keep pumping sewage to our treatment works. And I'm based in London. Water covers about 70% of the Earth's surface, but we can only use a fraction of that. And we get most of our water supply from rivers uh, and natural underground reservoirs. The average person uses 145 litres of water a day, which I think is quite a lot. Um, And if you joined all of Thames Water's water pipes together, they'd measure 20,000 miles that's nearly enough to wrap around the earth. And if you add on our sewage pipes, that's even more. So lots of pipe work in London pumping water and sewage. One of the big issues is is single-use plastics. And in the UK, 16 million plastic water bottles end up in landfill, rivers and oceans every single day. So one of the main initiatives we're working on with the Mayor of London to reduce single-use plastic usage is to install 100 new drinking water fountains across the capital. This is to encourage people to refill their water bottles instead of buying single-use plastic water bottles. And with this single-use plastic problem and pollution, if we carry on like this, there'll be more plastic in the ocean than fish by 2050. It's a really big problem. And Tap water is 500 times cheaper to produce than bottled water. So that's why we're installing these drinking water fountains and encouraging people to use them and stop using single use plastics. But the other thing we're doing, as well as that, is I don't know if many people are aware that Thames water generates power from poo. So I work in the wastewater side of the business, which is the sewage side of the business. And as Cross Thames Water, we self-generate 23% of our energy needs through a combination of poo power, wind and solar, which I think is very exciting. I, I love sewage, so I'm really biased. And I think it's absolutely amazing that we can create energy from sewage. We've got graduate schemes, apprenticeship schemes, uh, internship as well and Thames Water is is really keen to employ people from different backgrounds and we've got an ambitious skills strategy to to support us in delivering this. As an organisation we want to reflect and support the communities which we serve and encouraging people to apply and join us means we get diversity of thought, diversity of experience and that can only help us be better as an organization and deliver our, our targets and our, our mission statement. It's something we've done this summer with 20 young people joining us to found, find out more about how we supply water and experience the world of work. And we're also part of the Care Leavers Covenant and the 1,000 Black Interns Programme. So a broad range of programmes. No day is the same in the water industries. It's it's challenging and we need young, ambitious, bright people with innovative ideas to come and, and work for us. We employ over 6,000 people in Thames Water. And the best thing about Thames Water, one of the best things is the service we deliver is always going to be needed. People will always need water, and people will always need to have their sewage treated. And it's a great career in an industry with long- longevity, and it's our responsibility to ensure we do all we can for our customers to make sure we have that enduring supply that's critical for generations to come. And It's all about problem solving. Uh, That's what engineering is all about. So if you love fixing problems, then this is a great industry to work in. I was born in, in Sudan. I lived there till I was 16 and then I came to the UK in 1990 to do my A-levels and I stayed here ever since. I did mechanical engineering as my first degree and then I did a further degree in energy management and conservation. I spent the early part of my career working in, in social housing, in the energy side of social housing, insulation, fuel poverty before I joined the water industry in 2012 working for Thames Water. As a kid, I loved maths I, and I was, I was good at it as well. I loved the fact that you had a problem and there was either a right answer or a wrong answer. And that's ultimately what led me into engineering. I thrive and do very well when there's a right or wrong answer. It's that tangible end game that i sort of thrive on and that's what led me into engineering if you're organized you like a challenge and you love solving things engineering is a great career we want to attract women into into our industry we want to be a gender balanced business so yeah come and join us
4: if you'd like to check out some other types of engineering why not check out wireless wind turbine weapons
1: or welding engineering Engineer Academy, created with support from the Royal Academy of Engineering. If you would like to find out more about the A to Z, visit funkinslive.com engineer. We'll catch up with Engers, the engineering expert, and spin the wheel to get another letter from the A to Z of engineering at the same time next week on the podcast. Right now, let's get your questions answered then. I love this part of the show. I know I always say it, but I love when you send over your questions to be answered the best way. If you've got anything science rattling around your brain that you're not too sure about, the best thing to do, record it as a voice note for me. Send it through the free Fun Kids app. If you get to FunKidsLive.com, find the Science Weekly page. There's a big record button. Press that, say your name and then ask your question and I will make sure that I sort it out. First up this week, it's Naomi.
2: Hi, my name is Naomi, and I want to know, why is gold so valuable? Thank you.
1: Naomi, the reason that gold is so valuable is, weirdly, it's chemically quite boring. Bear with me on this, right? To make something of an element... You need to be able to heat it or melt it or mould it or chop it up. And you can't do that with a lot of other elements because they're either gas or they don't melt or they're dangerous or they rust quite easily when they're in open air and they go bad. But with gold, none of that happens. It's quite stable. Everything inside it is regular it's normal it doesn't change too much it's quite boring so you can make coins chains and even cars with it now even though chemically it's quite boring on the outside it looks stunning doesn't it gold it's pretty it's dazzling and again that's something that most other elements aren't a lot of other elements are gray (laughs) they're dull to look at also there's not a lot of gold Only 200,000 tons of gold have been mined. That's what experts think, which isn't really that much compared to other things that we mine from the ground. So because it's quite useful, because it's so stunning and dazzling and there isn't a lot of it, it means that people want to get their hands on whatever there is. And that means they're willing to pay a lot of money for it, which makes it valuable. That's why gold is valuable, Naomi. Thank you for the question. Let's get another one on.
2: Hi, I'm Ella from Melbourne, Australia. What is an electron? Thank you.
1: Ella, electrons. It all comes down to atoms. We are made of atoms. Everything on the Earth is made of atoms. Now, atoms are tiny. They are the building blocks of life. And they are made of a nucleus that's in the middle and then spinning around the edge like planets orbiting the sun are electrons. So they're even smaller. They are called a subatomic particle. And the amount of electrons in the atom define what type of element it is, whether it's gold, whether it's lead or oxygen. Some have more electrons, some have fewer electrons. And the amount of electrons that are there decide whether they can join up with other atoms to make compounds. An electron is a very tiny part of an atom, which is the tiniest thing around us, blows my mind. I think it probably does to you as well. Ella, thank you so much for the question. If you have got anything science that you want answered on this show, I'd love to hear from you. Seriously, get involved. Best way, get to funkidslife.com. Find the Science Weekly page on there. There is a big button. Record your question. I can answer it here. Later on this week, if you subscribe to the show at Fun Kids Podcast Plus, you'll get a little treat in your podcast feed. We've got a brand new bonus episode coming to you. It is stuffed full of your questions. That is the only way that you can hear them exclusively. They are a secret to you. You can get it by following us at Fun Kids Podcast Plus. That's not all you get as well. You get more bonus episodes with more fantastic guests that we have on the show and you get so many more podcasts on there, all ad-free. To get involved, support and subscribe to us at Fun Kids Podcast Plus. The best way is by clicking Try Free for a free 30-day trial on Apple Podcasts, and you've got the same thing at funkidslive.com.
0: Happy reading!
1: For this week's Dangerous Dan, where we look at the most mean, cruel, amazingly wicked things in the universe, we are headed to the jungles of South America. If you roam around the forests of Colombia, Brazil, Venezuela, Suriname, you might see, from afar because don't get too close, the glorious emerald tree boa. It's a snake. It grows to about six foot long, which is roughly the size of an adult man, so maybe like your dad or your uncle, something like that, and they are bright green. They are a glorious, dazzling emerald colour with white diamonds spotted along their back. They have thick front teeth that are long, which actually aren't really that useful because they're not venomous. Boa constrictors aren't venomous, but while they lack in toxics, they make up for in sheer terror. The boa squeezes its prey to death. They wrap themselves around their meal, normally a bird or a mammal, and they tighten. They squeeze. The thing is, it takes the snake quite a long time to digest, a long time to let their food go down. So it might not eat for months at a time, but when it's hungry, when it's ravenous, it'll go out, it'll find, and it'll squeeze a big meal that they can eat. And that'll keep them busy for the next few months. And that is why the gorgeous, glittering but dangerous emerald tree boa that's what makes it get a place on our dangerous dan list it's the fun kids science weekly this week we're talking chocolate we're talking what chocolate does to your mouth kind of why it tastes so good why do you keep wanting more what is actually happening with chocolate to find out more and Weisha Sarkar is here. Uh, they are from the School of Food Science and Nutrition at Leeds University. Uh, and Weisha, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much, Dan, for having me.
1: It's amazing, I always think. You're a professor, and professors can do work about anything, and you've chosen chocolate. What made you want to research this?
2: Chocolate is a very fun material to work with. Wouldn't you agree on that?
1: <laughs> I would, yeah. But so you, you figured out that it's a fun material. What What questions are you asking yourself that make you want to work more with it?
2: Yeah. So so basically, you know, on chocolate, everybody wa- likes chocolate, capes, craves for it. And so we were interested to understand why that is. We, all, of course, know it's sweet in taste. It has fat in it, uh, but we wanted to understand uh, more the texture. Uh, so we took uh, basically a 70% fat chocolate and a 90% one and to understand, uh, do you need all this fat? Uh, does, you know, uh, does the fat content matter? where it matters the most, uh, to create the the feel of chocolate. And we used uh, something called tribology, which is the science of friction, uh, to find out differences uh, between uh, various fat-containing chocolates. I love this. I love the fact that
1: so many of us love chocolate. And as you say, we crave it, we keep wanting more. And you're thinking, OK, why is this happening? Not many of us are actually, I guess, thinking much about what it's doing in our mouth, what's happening with the textures, why it melts, why it goes so smooth and creamy. So you were working with uh, one chocolate that was quite fatty, another not so much. What experiments were you doing to discover this? How were you actually researching it?
2: So so what we did was uh, we... As you rightly said, this whole thing happens within few seconds in the mouth, and you decide what chocolate you love or what chocolate you don't like, for example. So we uh, dissected this whole event into a series of experiments. So the first thing what you do is when you take a premium chocolate, you put it in your mouth. So you don't, you know, just ju- just chew it like like a, like a fruit, mm. for example, right? So you you re- let it rest in your mouth, and lick it against your tongue. So we exactly replicated that. Uh, using a synthetic uh, tongue so a 3d printed tongue surface um, which essentially has the softness uh, the roughness like the features and also the hydrophilicity of a real human tongue
1: uh, just uh, very quickly on the tongue how do you know enough about the tongue to 3d print a tongue like there's so much going on there's all these different <laughs> areas there's so many different bobbles no one no two tongues are exactly
2: the same Exactly, yeah, so what we did is we worked with School of Dentistry, where we took uh, you know we asked human participants and volunteers to come, and we we took uh, you know some uh, some polymers to take the masks of the tongue. And then we looked it under a three d microscope to look at the features how how big they are, how circular they are, how crown shaped they are, how they are distributed, and then we used a computational model uh, to develop a model of a kind of you can say an average tongue
1: so you 've got your average tongue. What are you doing? Are you just plonking a, a little cube of chocolate on it? How, like, wh- wh- talk me through the rest of the experiment?
2: Yes. So we took the tongue and we stick it to a to a motor or a surface where you can slide the tongue against your chocolate. So that's the first step, which nobody has done. Like, you know, people always take the chocolate, melt it up, mix it with some sort of a salivary fluid, and measure it. But what we did, we we did each step. So the first step was rubbing that that chocolate piece against the tongue, and where we saw that the mm mm-hmm the fat content matters the most. You see a massive difference in friction. When it contains a low-fat chocolate, it's way more creates friction. Whereas a high-fat chocolate, it it is way more lubricious. Then it starts melting. Then the next step, when it starts melting, the the temperature is 37 degrees, the cocoa butter starts melting, and then gradually the, the differences minimizes. And then it actually mixes with saliva. And when it mixes with saliva, it forms droplets. So these are You know, basically spherical shaped uh, water droplets with some uh, and fat droplets with some kind of cocoa particles sticking at the surface. And there, this was fascinating that, you know, you have so little. Really, effect in content of fat. So you need fat. You still need fat to form these droplets to create the mouth feel. But the content matters much less because saliva plays a dominant role there. Uh, as you keep on uh, having more chocolate going before you swallow. So that was for us very, very intriguing that you know you might need chocolate in the beginning to create the feel and stuff way more as compared to when it has gone to that step where it, where where saliva is also. You know, almost uh, playing together and, and, and creating creating a new material, which, which are basically emulsion droplets.
1: When we see some new chocolates come advertised to us, there we're told about brand new chocolates, the most smooth, the most creamiest one there's ever been. What, what's affecting that? So we like the smoothness, we like the the, the higher fat chocolate because it it makes it creamy, it makes it smoother as it runs across our tongue. When we have these smoothest chocolates ever. What's making them smoother?
2: So generally speaking, to date, most of the chocolate, as you see in the in the supermarket, you know, higher fat content is, you know, making them amazingly smooth, of course, in combination with a lot of flavoring material and, and you know, which comes from cocoa bean itself. Uh, and there are a lot of interesting processing. But what we, our uh, science shows us is that there might be an intelligent way of doing it and you might not know need to increase the fat content or rather you can even reduce it but without changing the changing the feel of it so imagine a chocolate which contains let's say a lot of fiber inside or or you know i don't know 20 percent less fat but exactly feels amazingly good because you have thought through it in terms of what happens in the mouth you know so what matters in the mouth so that's the whole point so that's what we are trying to say
1: there are so many chocolates that people might not like maybe because they're darker they've got higher cocoa in yep. have you found perhaps like a percentage level like the perfect uh, fat content chocolate if it gets higher it might start to get too bitter and then it creates more friction yep. and a more unpleasant feeling on our tongue
2: I'm afraid no. Maybe someone punts us and we do another study on that. Um, Because, you know, uh, one thing to bear in mind, we worked with commercial uh, chocolate. So we did not have so much leeway in terms of designing this fat, this cocoa content and stuff. Um, But eventually, yes, we can do that. We can try to understand which is the kind of critical concentration at which it starts, you know, falling off in terms of mouthfeel. Definitely that can be done. That's not difficult to do.
1: So with all that you've researched from this brilliant experiment, what's the main takeaway? What's the big learning? What have you discovered about what we most like in our chocolate?
2: So so for us the first thing is you know friction is very little studied in 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 food uh, friction is always studied if you do a uh, ice skating or or you know if you if you think of your cars and stuff but friction in mouth plays a huge role in deciding what food we like uh, so this is very much unnoticed until very recently uh, and what we figured out out of chocolate is that you know, it's a surface layer of fat where the fat contents matters the most. Whereas if you go down, uh, it's actually a lot of synergistic interaction with saliva, uh, which drives the drives the game as compared to the uh, the fat content of the chocolate itself. So uh, our our kind of next step was to think of designing chocolate in a slightly different way, and it's not about just chocolate. Any phase change material like cheese, uh, like butter, which contains fat as a main ingredient for lubricity uh, to think about developing them in a f- uh, sense which matters the most to the mouth so for example fat in the top layer uh, which comes in contact with your tongue surfaces whereas much lower calorie uh, inside uh, so that you can you can design eventually much more healthier uh, versions of the food which we eat
1: and I remember reading and you mentioned it earlier on in this chat like, the reason that we love so- chocolate so much is because by coincidence or maybe because we did a lot of research when we were making chocolate early on. But the cocoa butter that we love so much melts in your mouth at precisely your body temperature. And how brilliant is that?
2: Yeah, that that's one of the very cool thing that it's solid, uh, you know, outside when we buy it. But it melts in your mouth. It's a very stimuli responsive material, actually. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah
1: now lastly when you were doing this research how how was your sweet tooth i would have eaten so much chocolate i would have eaten so much chocolate doing
2: this we 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 all eat chocolate all the time you know that <laughs> that was the downside of doing to keep people away from you know eating rather than doing the experiment uh, but we had a nice uh, team of people who were really motivated by science as much at least more than just eating chocolate for sure so it was fun
1: Oh, just one more question that's popped into my brain. This is, I guess, the opposite of what you've learned with chocolate. We like chocolate because it can be quite smooth on our tongue. In your research with all different kinds of foods, how much have you learned about foods that we really don't like because they cause quite a lot of friction in our mouth?
2: Exactly. That was the initial thought process of understanding from chocolate. So we wanted to use chocolate to understand so that we can think of designing food, uh, which do not we do not like so much. So imagine, you know, any kind of uh, uh, product which contains a lot of fiber or all this plant based uh, cheese, which are coming out, vegan cheeses, we all know uh, we want to eat them, but often they are very dry uh, in the mouthfeel. So we are looking at them, we are measuring their friction, and we are finding that that actually contributes a lot. So how we can design, let's say, the next generation of vegan cheese in a better way so that we all want to eat and contribute to the planet, but they should taste good. And for taste, I really mean the, the frictional aspect, the lubricity, the mouthfeel.
1: It's amazing, isn't it? This lubricity, you say, how how, yes. how much friction there is in our mouth plays such an important part in what we enjoy, but we would never even think of it. So I'm so happy that you have put so much work into this. And Wisha Sarka, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you.
1: Before we leave this week, let's take a quick trip to Deep Space High. It's the smartest school in the solar system. Funny, isn't it? We fin it. We funny, isn't it? We leave our longest trip of the podcast to right at the end. We need to go way out, blast out through Earth's atmosphere to head to this school to learn from Professor Pulsar. For the last few weeks he has been teaching us about things here on planet Earth because there's a big window on deep space high, which means they can see everything. Today's lesson it's all about the Earth and how it's like the moon. You see when you look at the moon, it's covered in craters, isn't it? You might see that in the night sky. But how come the Earth isn't covered in craters? Well, maybe it is. Maybe it's just like that. Let's find out with Professor Pulsar.
5: Deep Space High. Earthwatch. With support from the Royal Astronomical Society. Jump into a wormhole and travel
4: to
5: Deep Space High, the school in space. But hurry, because lessons are about to begin.
6: It's weird, isn't it, looking at the moon with my telescope? It's totally covered in craters. In fact, they're so massive we can even see them without a telescope. So, Professor, why isn't the Earth covered in craters?
3: You think the Earth doesn't have any craters? Right, come on. How about that for a crater?
4: Wow, that's massive!
3: It's the Barringer Meteor Crater, here in the Arizona desert. 50,000 years ago, a giant fireball would have streaked across the North American sky. It was travelling at 26,000 miles an hour and hit the Earth with the power of 2,500 tonnes of high explosives. It left this crater, which is nearly a kilometre wide and 750 feet deep. And it isn't the only crater one can find on Earth. Our planet has been around for over four and a half billion years and will have been battered with millions of asteroids and meteorites since then.
0: But where are all the craters?
3: Think about it. The Moon's pretty much dead as a doornail. But Earth's a living, breathing planet. Remember them tectonic plates we looked at? The surface of the Earth is constantly changing and reshaping. We've got oceans and earthquakes on the surface and volcanoes throwing out lava and all under the floor of the atmosphere. Craters have simply just got covered up, that's all.
6: We can see craters on other planets too, can't we?
3: Absolutely. And craters can tell us a lot about the planets and moon, especially their age. Remember how the craters are created? Uh, duh.
6: Asteroids and meteorites from space. Just like the one in Arizona.
3: You've got it the more craters a planet or moon has, the older it's likely to be. Kind of like scars. That's right. Scientists think that there were many more impacts in the past when the solar system was younger because there was so much more material flying around. It's one way we can tell that all the planets in our solar system are roughly the same age. Sometimes we can get clues about what a planet is made of by looking at the patterns around the crater too. Like, if you drop a ball in a bucket of water...
6: It makes a big splash.
3: That's right. Different minerals will get thrown out in different ways. If the splashy bits look like lava, then we'll know that a planet had a hot core at the time of the impact.
6: Hey, Professor, how do you make a cheddar sandwich on the moon? With a cheese crater!
3: Sam, you've excelled yourself. That's terrible.
5: astronomical society find out more at funkidslife.com slash deep space
1: that is it for this week's fun kids science weekly if you have enjoyed the show this week and if you would like to send over one of your brilliant questions so i can answer make sure you send it to me as a voice note at funkidslive.com. it's really easy or you can record it and fire it over yourself on the free fun kids app We've heard loads of brilliant science series today, and we've got tons more you can catch up with them with more from Deep Space High in the A to Z of engineering. If you want to get ahead on the spin of that wheel, it's on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your shows, and at Fun Kids Podcast Plus, and Fun Kids, we are children's radio station from the UK. Listen all over the country on your DAB digital radio and at funkidslive.com.
0: Happy reading!